Amen. All right. Uh, good morning. My name is Sam, and we uh, are in a study of the book of Habakkuk, which has taken us five weeks, and then next week we'll pause and we will have uh, the seven-foot Dutchman preach on Palm Sunday at the gym. And uh, we will then have a Good Friday service and an Easter service with baptisms. If you've not been baptized uh, and you are a believer in Jesus, we would encourage you to do that. Uh, Chris did an awesome sermon on baptism. I'll send out a, an announcement this week kind of linking that. And you can uh, just learn about what baptism is. And um, it would be an awesome experience. We have a little hot tub. It's going to be hot and warm. And I'm not going to get wet, but someone is. So uh, it will be an awesome experience, and we'll even have maybe some spontaneous baptisms there, so that's exciting. Um, there's a study guide back there for Habakkuk, and uh, we try to do those for all our books. We have some in the back for the previous sermon series, so if you don't have one, then uh, by all means, please take one, and Bibles, take them, uh, and figure if we're going to give something away free, might as well be that. Um, so we're in Habakkuk chapter 1, and we'll go into chapter 2 today, and we uh, were introduced to this guy with a strange name that we mispronounced probably all the time, and maybe you never even knew that this was a book in the Bible, but obviously it is. And outside of these 56 verses, which is how many are in this book, uh, we know actually very little to nothing about Habakkuk. There's some legends attached to him, and he is meant, his name is mentioned, but not necessarily him, uh, throughout uh, Scripture a couple times. But this small book has become one of the most influential of all of the minor prophets, uh, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So much so, uh, it's referenced by the Apostle Paul in his sermon in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 13, which tells the history of the early church. And you'll see that Acts 13 probably sounds a lot like my introduction sermon, because he pretty much goes through a whole history of the Old Testament and ends with Habakkuk. And I didn't read that before, but I read that after and was like, dang, why didn't I preach Acts 13? Because that would have been really awesome. So then the verse we're going to look at today, in addition to others, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted in Romans and in Galatians and in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and it was those verses in the New Testament that inspired uh, the likes of Martin Luther who led the Protestant Reformation, which in many ways is contributing to the reason why we're sitting here today. Uh, so it's a very influential and powerful little dynamo of a book, and we might find it difficult, the average kind of Joe does, as you, uh, no offense Joe, uh, the average person does when uh, you go into the, the Bible and you see these old books, that this one's 2,500 or so years old, and you go, how can this ever have any application for me today? And Paul, though, uh, wrote in Romans, which is still a very old book to us, but he wrote in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 4, about the Old Testament. And this is what he said. Uh, he said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And this is not the first book you might turn to, like a Hallmark card for encouragement, because it's a book that in many ways, at least half of it's quite disturbing. And it gives us a picture of God that you go, uh, where's the hope here? But in the center, in verse 2-4, it points us to the hope that ultimately is Jesus. And the thing about it is, uh, in Luke 24, when Jesus was walking along the road uh, with his disciples, after he had risen from the dead, and no one believed it at that point, no one was really aware of it, except a few women, and they weren't going to believe them, uh, he was walking along, and he taught them that the entire Old Testament was about him, and pointed to him. So even Habakkuk, and the rest of the, the prophets, and Moses, and all these histories, ultimately are intended to point us towards Jesus. But, this book is not like Proverbs, it's not like James, that gives us very plain, you know, simple statements of practical living of pray more, um, you know, don't sin, and those types of things. It's, it's a little more deep than that, um, although those are obviously very deep. What it does give us is an opportunity to eavesdrop on a conversation between Habakkuk, this guy who is who's wrestling with his faith, of which I challenged us we should all be doing, uh, but he wrestles with his faith in, in God, and basically it's 
a wrestling of who is this God that I really believe in. And there are a lot of conversations like that in the Bible. I mean, it's full of little private conversations with Job and with Moses and with Elijah. And it's these conversations that God wanted us to hear for our benefit and ultimately for for his glory. And so Habakkuk actually historically writes about 607 B.C., which is hard for us to really fathom uh, what time period that was. But it's about 20 years before the fall of Jerusalem, which will come uh, according to the prophecy that, that God shared here. And it's a time in Jerusalem where uh, Assyria is basically had taken over the top 12 tribes, which was Israel, when it had been divided. And these two tribes are left down here. Assyria has wiped them out. And now they're getting attacked by these guys called the Babylonians. And the city, though, regardless of who is outside of, of kind of Judah at this time, is full of corruption and injustice and brokenness. And Habakkuk is just overwhelmed by the sin he sees in his own people. And he's just disgusted by it and disturbed by it. And it pushes him to a place where he has to cry out to God to do something. Because it seems like God's been silent for a long time. And so he cries out to God and he says, How long? To which the Lord responds, Soon. Pretty much what he tells him. Soon. But then God gives him a little insight into what soon is going to look like. And what's going to happen And that includes raising up this idolatrous nation, this nation that doesn't worship God, this nation that is totally evil and really good militarily, just wipes out anyone that gets in their way. And I'm going to use this idolatrous nation, raise them up to judge and to punish the idolatrous nation that is Judah, my own people. And Habakkuk Habakkuk is like, whoa, foul, no, that's not fair, I I don't like that. And it disturbs him to know, I like that you're going to act, God, but not this way. What about justice? What about love of your own people? What's going on here? And the Lord answers him in summary, and he says, my perfect justice, which again for us is really impossible to fathom, because all we see in terms of justice, and not just people committing crimes, but people not loving each other as they should. We never see any perfect justice. And to imagine perfect justice, God says, my perfect justice is going to bring judgment on all of sin, including the sin of my own people. And that's the part Habakkuk is disturbed with. And so, at the heart, I think, of Habakkuk's problem, at the, at the heart of the issue he has here, is the same thing that we all struggle with and none of us will ever admit. And that is this that we actually don't believe that we're the worst person sitting in the room. Even when we're sitting alone. Okay? And I know we all have those experiences. We go to family gatherings and we know Uncle Buck over here who's got a real screwed up life, I feel a little more better than him. I'm not as messed up as that guy. But we can look all outside of our own family into the community that we live in into the nation that we live in, into the world we live in, and actually go, well, I ain't the worst one. There's a lot worse than me. And what we do is we play judge and we play jury comparing ourselves and our lives and our work and our histories to everyone else's. And most of us come out on the positive scale. All of us come out on the positive scale because we can find somebody worse than us. And we actually have a lot of Babylonians, if you will, to compare ourselves to in the papers, on TV, on the Internet. It doesn't take but a point and click to go, well, that guy's messed up. I'm better than him. And that's where our mind, I think, naturally goes. And I think what this does, it plays itself out into this thing called the sin of entitlement. And I'm kind of making that up because sin is sin. And when you begin to identify particular sins, it's dangerous. But we'll call this one the sin of entitlement. And that is that we, you, I believe that God actually owes us something for how we live. That we ultimately believe that we are good people or not so bad people, then we actually deserve something or don't deserve something because of how we've compared with others. And when God reveals this unbelievable plan to Habakkuk, we begin to see Habakkuk play the same compare game a little bit. 
And when you start to do that, you start to take a step closer, maybe a leap, maybe a sprint, a step closer to believing that God saves the good sinners and God punishes the bad sinners based on works, which is incredibly dangerous. The cross shows us, the cross of Jesus shows us not that He loves the good sinners, but it shows us that He loves more than anything His own righteousness and His own justice. That's what He loves. And God's love for you and for me does not consist in making much of us. What it does consist of making of is not us and our works, but in fact, His own, Himself, for us. And we can never forget that. And so, as we read this and we begin in chapter 12 here, I don't want us to read Habakkuk as if this guy has this really weak faith. Because I don't think he does, necessarily. No weaker than mine or yours. But what we all should do is, is see that we have a guy here wrestling with a God and what he says because it seems to contradict what he thought God was like. And the reality is Habakkuk's the one wrong, not God. And instead of allowing that tension of when I don't like what God has done, when I don't like what the Bible says God is like, when I don't like these things, instead of allowing that tension to say, I am judge, and I judge you not worthy of my worship, see you later, he is compelled, and this is the model of faith I think we see, to get on his knees and pray, even when he has some doubts, to ask God what's up. And though he expresses a little bit of hesitation and misunderstanding and confusion, at the same time we see, in beginning in verse 12 in particular, he has a confidence in God even when his faith has been shaken. In particular, who God is, regardless of what he sees. So if you join me in verse 12 here in Habakkuk, it says this. And he is, these are the first words that Habakkuk has said. He complained. God responded and said, I'm going to raise up this terrible people. Let me tell you how terrible they are. And if you didn't hear last week, you should, you should read it or listen to it online because they're terrible. They're about as bad as you can get. Brutal people. They are people when Jerusalem is finally conquered. The king at the time, his own sons are killed in front of his own eyes before they take the king off. It is recorded in Scripture and they are a bad, 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 bad people. And so now here's a response to his, his plan. Habakkuk's response to what he hears. And he says in verse 12, God, are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, the Babylonians, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now, here's a good question for us all to ask, and I've been sitting on this all week, as we all have our story, we all have our pains, we all have them now, or we did have them, or you will have them. We all have our trials and our sufferings. And the question is, when you experience the ones that are unexpected, which is pretty much all of them, when you experience those unexpected sufferings, those trials, those pains, those evils that you didn't want to happen, whether they be emotional or physical or spiritual, what is your first response? What is the first thing that you are led to? And I, I understand that without question there are times when our faith is tried, where we fall flat in our face and we get angry with God and hold fists up to Him. There are those times that that happens. But is that the norm? Is that what happens most of the time? Because we have lots of pains and sufferings, I believe. Or are we led closer to God? And I believe that because we are governed by one of two things most of the time. You and I are either governed by the fear of God, by a fear and reverence for who God is, or we are awed and governed by a fear of this impossible circumstance. And that's what takes our energy and are distracted by as opposed to being fearful of God. Now, faith, I believe, genuine, true, honest faith, is being overwhelmed totally overwhelmed with an awe 
for God within horrific, terrible, uncomfortable, irritating experiences. But what overwhelms you is not the experience, it's God. That, I believe, is faith, as opposed to being consumed by the experience. Now, when Habakkuk is disturbed, which he is, he is disturbed, he has this this overwhelm of sin that he sees, and now God tells him a plan that even overwhelms him more. His faith is shaken, he is disturbed, he doesn't understand. He turns not away from God, but toward God and what he actually knows, regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he hears. He turns to what he knows about God, because I believe, as he, I think, does, which is the moment you take your eyes off the beauty of God. The moment you start steering your eyes away from the beauty, all you are going to see is ugly. All you're going to see is ugliness if you're not looking at God and through God at everything. And so the first thing he says is that you are from everlasting. Now the Bible gives us an answer to the question, what is God like? Because people want to know the answer to that question. And clearly, it's all understood and explained in the person of Jesus Christ. God is not only, or Jesus, I should say, is not only God-like, but God is actually Christ-like. Okay? But the Bible does answer in very plain language, and then also as we watch His interaction with people, what God is like, and it provides us descriptions of certain qualities of His character. And being made in the image of God, as Genesis chapter 1 and 2 teach us, being made in the image of God means that we can exhibit some of those things. So we can uh, exhibit some level of justice, some level of mercy and goodness and kindness and love and grace. These are things that we can exhibit because we are made in the image of God. However, being marred by sin, when we exercise justice or mercy, it's typically broken in some way. Certainly not perfect. And so, God has these attributes that we share in some sense, but there's a a body of attributes that only God possesses. Omnipotence, omniscience, this idea of, I am all-powerful, I see everything and know everything. We don't have that capability, though we pretend often that we do. He is the one that's reserved. And one of the things that that Habakkuk starts with is, is those attributes he chooses to meditate on first, as his first response And the first one he chooses is the eternal nature of God. Without beginning, without end. This is where his mind initially goes when he is totally disturbed in his faith and is experiencing something that he doesn't understand. God is timeless. He doesn't have a beginning or end. He doesn't grow. Okay, He doesn't learn. God doesn't learn anything. So when when Moses is having a conversation with him and he's like, well, God, did you think about you know, blah, 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 and God says, well, I'll repent and do this differently. It's not as if Moses told him something that God didn't know. And we have to filter that as we read that, going, why would God have this conversation for us to eavesdrop on and speak as if He didn't know these things? He is eternal. He is everlasting. He's not limited by anything outside Himself, not even time. Eternity for us is an impossible thing for us to grasp. You ever thought about sitting in heaven for eternity? My kids do. They're like, how long is that? Okay? Because we're, we're so time-driven about everything. So the idea of something eternal and to be with God in eternity is like, I can't grasp that concept. But I think it brings us comfort. And it does for Habakkuk, because this is where he starts to know that God always sees things from eternal perspective. That He knows without question, what is best for our lives, what is best for the world, because He sees everything and knows everything and He's not bound by anything. That's a huge comfort. And that should be the place that we start. But I don't know how often we actually even dwell on the attributes of God. How often it was like, I was meditating on the eternality of God today, and it was really, I don't think we go there. And I think the same thing is evident in, I was speaking to some guys about this, about our marriages. When we take our marriages, if we don't discipline ourselves, and I speak for myself personally, 
So I'm sure everyone else is totally different than this. But if I don't discipline myself to focus on the beauty of my bride, I will more than likely look at beauty elsewhere. And I'm not talking about just physical beauty, although that is certainly part of it. But I also can't just go, Kaylin. I mean, that's just so ambiguous. But if I take an attribute of my wife, if I just take something like motherhood, and I go, I'm going to focus on my wife as a mother, and begin to unpack that, and, and to see all the pieces of she does as a mom, and how she raises our children, how she takes care of her home, I start going, wow, how beautiful is that? And that is just one aspect of my wife that I've taken time to discipline myself on. And we don't do that with God. If you ask, what is God like? We go, well, He's big and powerful. But even that, let's just talk about power. Do we really dwell on the power of God who is able to, with a word, speak this into existence? Who names every single star, the billions of them that there are, has a name for each one. Knows how many hairs are on your head, how many breaths that you are given in this life. Do we ever sit and dwell on those things? Because I'll tell you, our natural default is to be distracted by everything else. Just as husbands and wives, our natural default is to go, let me focus on something I don't like. And we easily have our eyes swayed away. We have to be focused and disciplined to talk about the eternal nature of God as a beginning. That God is outside of everything. That He is not a man. Then he goes in to say, O Lord my God, capital L-O-R-D, which is important. God does act in time. And Habakkuk goes, you're not only eternal, but you're actually personal. And God didn't start this machine called the world and just kind of wind it up and then let it go and then say, well, I hope it works out. Ooh, it crashed. It's not what he did. He planned before the world was even created to be involved in the world. And it's, it's noteworthy that he uses the covenant name of God. Okay? Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D. The name that is given to Moses when he says, Who should I say has sent me? It's like Yahweh. Okay? Now... And he calls him my God. Okay? Yahweh, my God. And in a not so subtle way, Habakkuk's reminding God, but I think he's actually probably reminding himself, like a little good self talk, that God has a special relationship with these people. Ten of the twelve tribes have been taken away into exile, and there's two left. And now he's just said, I'm going to wipe out those two. He's like, Whoa, 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 whoa. You made promises. You promised we'd be a nation. You promised we'd be here forever. You promised that we were your people, that you were a God. You promised. You're, you're supposed to be our dad. You take care of us. You love us. And that's true. And how easily we are distracted away to think, God, you really don't love us. You don't really care. And so he reminds himself that he does care, that they are his people, that, they, that he is their God, that he is taking care of them, and he made a promise, and God doesn't break his promises. And then he says, my Holy One, my Holy One. And he focuses on the fact that God is not only eternal, he's not only personal, but he's holy. This is where his mind's going immediately after God tells him something he hates, and he doesn't like, and disturbs him. He's like, okay... Let's go back to the beginning. Who are you, God? And he says, you are holy. You are totally, this is what holiness is, you are totally separated from sin. Totally and wholly devoted to seeking His own glory. And God's holiness is this attribute that we actually are supposed to filter everything that happens in our lives through that we believe is totally evil and unfair. We have to understand that God is totally separated from sin. He does not wish us to fail. He wishes us to succeed. And He seeks to purify us from all sin. That we might be fully devoted to His glory. But, in our sin, we fall woefully short. We fall woefully short. And the holiness of God is supposed to be awe-inspiring and bring some fear into our hearts because He is absolutely perfect and we are totally imperfect. He is holy and we are not. 
and we have to ask the question, how is a holy God going to be with me? Because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And since I can't do anything to get rid of my sin myself, what am I going to do? And so he looks and sees this evil thing and he knows that God is separated from sin. And what he doesn't know quite yet is that Jesus is going to make it all possible. And so we trust then that all the work God is doing, even the stuff we don't like, we think is irritating, uncomfortable, or even evil like this, we trust that His work, however painful it might be, however uncomfortable, that those are His means by which He leads us to the cross of our need of a Savior and His means by He makes us look. He makes us look more like His Son. And so this is where Habakkuk starts as a foundation. And he says, in conclusion of those things, we shall not die. This is his conclusion. We shall not die. After God just says, you're going to die, you're going to be punished. So he must mean that we're not going to be totally wiped out. That's his confidence. And he says, oh rock, oh rock, I'm going to stand on the rock, the foundation that is God's character, not what I see. Not what I see going on, not what I assume, not what I feel, not what I think I know, but on God's character as He's proven Himself to be. And this is where all of our questions must begin and end. Whenever we struggle with something difficult, where life feels unfair to us, the first question is always, who is God? Who is God? Because that will very quickly lead to you to what your answer is going to be. We begin with who is God. And he has some hard questions to ask, but he asks them from the top of the rock of who God is and has already proven himself to be. And he knows he is secure that God has it in control and they won't be totally wiped out. But he still asks the hard question. In verse 13, he continues through 17. He says, You, as he keeps talking to God, you who are of pure eyes, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Talking about the Babylonians. Verse 14, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings them, the Babylonian king, he brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad in his victory over righteous people. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, and he makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then, this guy, this terrible man, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are you going to let him keep going and do this forever? And so what he does is after he had spent a big chunk declaring who God is, which I hope we start with, this is where we typically go. Habakkuk turns his focus onto the Babylonians and he begins to play the compare game. And Habakkuk struggles with how God, this holy God, can allow an evil people to succeed when compared to the righteous Israel, righteous Judah. And he says, next to the Babylonians, we look like stinking saints. And he rightly wonders, as he should, how can you judge Judah? How can you judge these these two tribes that are left who are admittedly bad? He's been crying about how bad they are. How can you judge them and not judge Babylon, who's way worse. They're way worse than us. And you're going to give them victory. And in order to help God understand the comparison, Habakkuk says, let me give you a word picture here. So he gives them this picture, which is honestly both true and false in many ways. He gives them this word picture of this helpless little Israelite salmon, swimming around, well, they're probably not salmon over there, some little fishy, eastern fish, right? Swimming around, helplessly, dragged away by the 
Babylonian fishermen. And the truth is, God didn't make mankind a fish or a crawly thing that was helpless. The truth is, in the creation account, He made Him, He was the pinnacle of creation. The very good part of creation. And He put Him in charge of everything. Even the fish and the crawly things. And instead of choosing to honor God, they chose to rebel and give up their position. And God didn't give them bad kings as much as they rejected the good king, who is God, and said, we want to do it this way like other nations, and he warned them how bad it would get. So Habakkuk draws this picture of like, oh, look at us, we're so helpless, which isn't necessarily the truth. Nevertheless, he does give a picture of the Babylonians that's kind of literally true because they practiced the same things that the Assyrians did where when they defeated a nation or defeated a city, they would actually string their captives together in single file with a hook in their mouth and line them up like fish and take them away. And Habakkuk wants to know if this tool of judgment that you're going to use, God, is ever going to be judged itself. Or are you just going to let them do this forever? That's kind of typical. I mean, it sounds like a, a, a little kid. You let them do it forever to everyone? Or are they ever going to get theirs? We're getting spanked. Are they going to get spanked? That kind of mentality. Now, in essence, he is challenging God's justice in many ways. And Habakkuk doesn't believe it's fair, is the bottom line. Which... I'm sure none of us have ever said. Okay? I don't believe it's fair. And for whatever reason, the phrase, it's not fair, is like a hardwired phrase as we grow up because my kids have said it since they were very young and I never taught it to them. I never sat down and said, let me teach you something. It's not fair. But it always comes out, very young age, some of their first words, as soon as you give one kid two pieces of candy, and another kid one, or one kid goes to bed early and the other stays up, it's not fair. Always. And the sad thing is, it's not like as adults we like, now that I'm an adult, I'm never going to use it's not fair. We continue to use it all the time, and it comes quite natural to us. And if we actually pause and think about it, our response typically, and it was as a teacher, it was as a parent, when someone says it's not fair, our response is always, life isn't fair. Right? We don't know what the snarf that means, but it sounds a good response, and they are quiet after that, because they're like, what? You know, and they don't understand either. But they're so confused that they forget and move on. But here's, here's if the core of it. If you break it down a little bit, and I've been sitting on this, As kids or adults, because we we all use it still, we don't use it's not fair when we've been wronged according to a standard. We use it when we've been wronged, in our view, in comparison to someone else. My kids never, if I give a kid a couple pieces of candy and another kid one, that's not fair! They don't ever say, well, I know that we actually deserve zero. So thank you for the two I got. And thank you for the one I got, Dad. That never happens. They don't realize these things. Do you realize that I'm not required or obligated to give you anything? Do you see this? And so it's always in comparison. It's never according to a standard because we don't like standards. We like to play the compare game. God isn't fair. Let me just give you a little news flash. God isn't fair, and it's a good thing He's not fair. It's a great thing it's not fair. And you may have heard this before, but fair for us would be hell. For everybody. Every single person in this world is a sinner, and they deserve hell. You don't want to say it's not fair to God. We don't want a God that's fair in that sense. Because we'll get exactly what we deserve. But instead, we have a God that is merciful. And more than that, we have a God who is gracious. And Habakkuk conveniently forgets that Judah has been acting wickedly for years. For years before Babylon was ever on the scene. They have been idolatrous. And they 
God has been incredibly patient with him. Incredibly patient with him and should have killed them many moons ago. But God hasn't. But Habakkuk doesn't bring that up. He wants to talk about the worst people over here. Now, if you get nothing from this, get this. Because I think we're exactly the same. And I say this to my own personal shame because I, I think this is a point of confession. That like Habakkuk, we only concern ourselves with God's mercy and His grace and His love when it's about us. And we only concern ourselves most of the time with God's holiness, His sinlessness, His justice, and His wrath when it's about someone else. We don't want to talk about God's justice with ourselves and God's wrath with ourselves. Let's talk about forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. But that guy who hurt me over there, get him. Get him. That's where we're at. And that's where I think we rest. And that's where Habakkuk's going, I think. He's like, what about them? I know, I know I'm bad. But what about them? Well, let's not talk about them right now. Let's talk about you. And so in verse 17, after he asks these hard questions, and he basically says, this is not fair, he says what he's going to do. With a little bit of cynicism, he ended it with, you're going to let this go on forever? And then walks away. And he goes and it's, we kind of think he's maybe going and pouting, but I don't think that's what's happening. He waits for God. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. After his hard question, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to say what he'll say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Wait and see what you say. He's ticked. And I think, quite frankly, it's okay to be ticked. And the Lord answered. Now, whenever the Lord answers, if you ever see these answers, they're never answers like, okay, I feel better. Usually he's like, let me tell you who I am. The Lord answered me. He said, quote, write the vision, what he's about to say. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, what he's about to say. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So I'm going to tell you something. It's going to happen. So Habakkuk starts or maybe ends his complaint with saying, I'm going to go into the tower and see what God's answer is to this impossible question I've asked him, because clearly there's a, something wrong. And it's tempting, as I said, to read as this like, little angry little boy stomping up his tower, waiting for Dad to prove it isn't like he said it was, and that he made a mistake. And I'm not perfectly certain what's happening here, but I do remember uh, the verse in Proverbs 18, Verse 10 that says, the name of the Lord, same Yahweh, is a strong tower. And the righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord, God is a strong tower. And so, the watchtower in a city for practical purposes is, was obviously at a place positioned on the corner uh, or near the front gate of the city and gave them a view of every threat that came toward the city. And you position someone up there to, as a defense, basically. And in the Old Testament, prophets and the men of God are often called watchmen. Isaiah is called a watchman. Um, and they are to basically protect the purity of the worship. That was their goal, to see the things coming in and things going out. And he goes up into this tower, probably figuratively. I don't think he's actually going up into a tower. But figuratively. And he retreats, I believe, Rather than looking at it as a little kid complaining, I think he retreats into this place where he can focus his attention on God's Word. He says, I'm going to wait to see what God says. So he's going to focus and wait and see what God says, the Word that He gives. 
And when things get hard, when you get to a place where you don't like God, you might love Him. Got that place with your kids? Come on. With parents? Maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm, sure. Well, like my wife and I, I really love that kid, but I don't like him right now. Right? You ever got... No. Yeah, you never said that. I have. Okay? And there, you get that with God sometimes. And this is where Habakkuk is. I love him. I don't know if I like him right now. But I'm willing to wait. And so instead of running away, he retreats into it. When things get difficult, when we have doubts, when we don't understand, when we don't like what's going on, what he does is go into the tower. And many of us, when we happen, we, we start wandering like crazy. We look for answers from all kinds of people and places, and there's lots of voices to hear. There's a ton. And I wonder if they actually distract us from what the truth actually is. And instead, I think that we need to actually retreat into a place of strength and a place of safety. Into a place where we can get above the fray, above the chaos, above the confusion, and sit back in solitude and in silence where we can see everything with a clear head, a place that is a sanctuary of God where we can listen to God's Word. Do you actually have that place? Some people do, some people don't. Maybe it's out in the woods somewhere. Maybe it's in your home somewhere. But that place when just it's hard, where you can get away and you can just be with God alone and listen and wait for God's Word. That's where Habakkuk goes. And then he says, when God responds, he tells Habakkuk, write it down. Write what I'm going to say down. And I love that we have a God who writes. I'm someone that writes. If you ask me a question, I'll give you a ten-page response. It's just how I process. It might be laborious for you to read, but it's enjoyable for me to write and quite cathartic. Okay? I believe and love that we have a God who writes and who sustains what He writes. We are a Bible-thumping religion of a book. And there is beauty in that. There is a reason why God had us write things down because He wanted it permanently recorded. Permanently recorded that it might be perpetually proclaimed. A lot of P's. And to make sure that it's pure. Because when someone just says something, it's very easy to, you know, a little telephone game, to repeat it in such a way that it comes out completely different. I went to a very charismatic school where I met a lot of people who like to preface their statements with, the Lord told me. God told me this. The Lord, the Holy Spirit whispered to me. It's like, how do you argue with that? When someone prefaces their conversation with, God told me that you need to, great, so if I don't, now I'm disobeying God. This is fantastic. He gave us the book for us to be able to say, this is what God speaks on. And if you say God told you something, we'll test it here. We are a church that believes in this as the foundation of all things. If we are doing something wrong, we're tested by this, not just by someone's opinion. Our opinions, our feelings, our experiences, even the things we think we know are tested by Scripture. Always. We go back to the book to figure out what we're supposed to do. It evaluates all of us and all of what we're doing here. And that's a good thing. We need a standard. We need something to be tested. And so he says, write it down for future audiences like us and future messengers like us, just as we are given the gospel, which is really what this is ultimately pointing towards. We are to use it to run and to tell other people, not just to sit in the tower forever. Now, the message that he tells him is one of judgment. And is judgment on the self-glory, prideful self-glory of men. But also within that is God's intent and promise to have the glory of His kingdom proclaimed and established. God will judge the Babylonians. That's why He says, it's going to happen. Don't worry. If it seems like it's going slow, it's going to happen. In fact, it happens about 70 years past this when Persia comes and wipes out the Babylonians. It will happen, Habakkuk. 
There will come an end. Jesus is returning. We might think it's slow. We might think it's not. He is coming back. And He's coming back at the exact moment that God foreordained Him to come back. That is true. And He says, this will not be delayed. It will happen when God says it is supposed to happen. And all will be judged. And verse 4, He says, here's how anyone will be saved. And this is where we'll conclude. In the powerful verse, Habakkuk 2.4 says this, speaking of the Babylonians, Behold, his soul, God speaking, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God declares the problem with the Babylonians, ultimately. It's not that they're a great military. It's not that they're mean. It's not that they're cruel. It's that they are prideful in their soul. There's a deep spiritual problem in here. Might might make right for the rest of the nations. It doesn't make it right for God. He says the problem is the pride in their hearts. And the Babylonians aren't the only ones that struggle with pride in their hearts. Habakkuk does. You and I do. All men do. It's the heart of sin. It's the core of sin. To believe that we know more than God, that we can stand in judgment on God, that I can find happiness apart from the Creator of all things. That is the heart of sin. And not only do we believe, I think, that we are good, we actually believe that we can in fact fix and save ourselves. And we can make ourselves, which is the goal, right before a perfectly holy God. Now, God says though, that rightness with Him comes by faith. Now many of us will characterize ourselves as living by faith when we compare to other people. And we, just like Habakkuk did, like to play the compare game and measure our faith according to all the bad people out there. And we have our little score sheet And we compare with all the Babylonians we see on TV, in our own family, in the church. We're like, I'm way better than him. What you don't realize, what we don't realize is that you and I are the Babylonians. Everyone is Babylonians. We are all broken sinners. We are all just as evil. We are all the worst people in the room. And I know you don't believe that. Right now, you're thinking, oh, well, not the worst. There's probably a child abuser in here. They're definitely worse than me. Really? Last time I checked, the God who gave the law to say, don't lie, is the same one who said, don't commit adultery. You break the law, you die. We're all lawbreakers. We're all Babylonians. Because we're all prideful in our hearts. And we want to pit against, they should be punished and I should be saved. No, we should all be punished. You should be punished. I should be punished. We are all bad because a good law, good God gave good laws and we broke them. There are only bad guys and one good guy And that is God. If you want to compare yourself with someone, compare yourself with Jesus. And very quickly you'll find that it's true. There are only bad guys. Because unless you're perfect like Jesus, you're a bad guy. You're in the Legion of Doom. You're a villain. You're evil. You are bad. God is holy. And God is perfectly just, and therefore God has to punish every sin there is. And the question isn't why does God not kill all the sin that He sees? The question should be, why doesn't He kill me? Why doesn't He kill me? Well, I'm not part of this sin. I just I see lots of sin. Yeah, look in the mirror. You'll see more. Are we banking? I mean, are are you really banking 
Because I grew up this way. I grew up in the legalistic, self-righteous, two rules. If I don't drink and have sex with women before I am married, I am a righteous person. That's how I lived and that's how I judged. And I was broken and sinful and prideful, but I was banking on the hope that the scales worked out for me. That I had just enough good. Just a little bit more than most people. If, let me just tell you this. You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. It doesn't matter how the scales weigh out. You have to be perfect. And good enough? There is no good enough. If, catch this. If good enough is acceptable to God, if good enough is acceptable to God, then God is not just. He's not perfectly... If He can go, well, come on in. We'll overlook that one. I didn't catch that one on the cross, but okay, we'll let you in. If good enough is, is okay for God, He's not really just. But it doesn't mean we won't stop. We try to be good moral people and go ahead. Try to be a good moral person. It won't work. You'll end up in one of two places. One, you'll end up in a place of despair because you realize you can't be perfect. Or, you'll think that whatever law you set up, you're fulfilling and you've been a really good Christian. Not realizing that you're still falling short of perfection and now you're doubly sinful because you're prideful about it. You can only end up with pride or despair when you try to hope in your own work. The hope has to be in Jesus and what He has done. Now, Paul said this. If you, if you turn to me to Galatians chapter 2, this is where Habakkuk comes to full fruition. When he's arguing with guys in Galatians who are trying to do the Jesus Plus program. Like, well, we know you're saved by Jesus, but you also need to do these things. And he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, this. He said, God has given this law, and this law is good, but it's basically only good to show us how sinful we are. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified, not made right, by the works of the law, which are all God's commandments. 613 of them to be exact. Well, I've done 609 really well. Doesn't matter. We are not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one, no how hard you work, will be made right before God if you are counting on your own work. It doesn't matter how good you are. Newsflash, there are no good people. But many of us believe the same thing that the world does, that, well, I just will be a good person and I'll get to heaven. No! You won't cut it. You won't make it. Your scales are already screwed up because they're imperfect. And then he gets to Galatians 3, verse 11, where Habakkuk comes in and he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Specifically, faith in Jesus and the work that He has done. You are not saved based on how good or bad you are. That's the Gospel. Because you are terrible and can't be good. But Jesus is awesome. And He makes you right because of what He did for you. And we place our trust in the work that Jesus has done to satisfy all the faith doubts that Habakkuk has. Like what? Is God just? Yes. And you want a God who's just. You don't want a God to let some of the brokenness just kind of go in this world. You want sin to be punished, just not your own. We want a God who is just. And is He just? Yes. Because He deservedly punishes all sin. And on the cross, He pours out all the wrath that was intended for me on Jesus, the perfect sacrifice as a 
Good example of sacrifice? No, as a substitute for you. You deserve to die. And so do I. And so God says, I'm just. I will punish. And then you go, well, is he holy? Is he separated from sin if he uses an evil people like that? Because he did. He used Romans and really messed up Pharisees and all kinds of, even a best friend of Jesus, toward the cross. And you say, yes, because he is in control of all things. And he purposes all things, even evil, the cross, which is the most horrific, terrible thing that can happen for his glory. And is God loving? Oh, yeah. Because not only does he punish sin, he raises his son from the dead, and he gives me the perfect life that I have to have to be in his presence. That's what he gives me. He gives me a Jesus suit. And I say, I cannot work to be loved by you. The best I could do, you say, is worth filthy rags. And so I lay myself at your feet, knowing that the only reason I get into your presence is because of what Jesus has done for me. Not only taking your wrath, but giving me a perfect life. And so Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse, it's going on this arm, right here. So we've got a gospel presentation. The worst sinner of all, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That is the gospel. We can't play the compare game because all we have is Babylonians comparing to Babylonians. That's it. We have to compare ourselves with Christ and put our faith in Him. And I'll close with Romans chapter 3. It says the righteousness of God comes through faith in what Jesus did, not what I do and not what I didn't do. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law that tells me how sinful I am. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, His undeserved favor as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's not fair. Right, you didn't deserve grace. Whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does it all. He does everything. And so, I don't trust and put my faith in what's going on in order to explain God. I put my trust and my faith in Jesus and God to explain what is going on. It's not the opposite. And we take communion every Sunday to declare that you will never, ever, ever, ever be perfect. And that Jesus is the one that covers your sin, that allows you in the presence of God, and the only thing that you have to claim is what Jesus has done. That's it. And there's joy in that because it's very frustrating to try and be a good person. I have really failed at it. But through Christ, He comes and lives within me by His Spirit, and He empowers me to be more like Him and more like Him And I declare that every Sunday I take communion, where I participate in what he's done. This is an act, this is actually the moment, the most important moment of our worship service. It's not the sermon, it's not the music, it's communion, where we make claim and participate in what Jesus has done for us in a way you don't do anywhere else. Let's pray. Father God, we magnify your greatness. Thank You for being a God who is not fair. I confess, Lord, and I pray that people confess with me that I am sinful and I am broken and I am rebellious 
and I pretend that I'm not. And I pray and thank you for what you have done shown mercy to a Babylonian like me. And not only shown mercy, but shown me grace and given me new life. And I pray that people here today, Father, will embrace that new life, that free gift, will stop trying to work themselves to You because it's not going to work. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your sacrifice. Thank You for loving me. And help me to play in the compare game with Jesus and not anyone else and lay all my sins at His feet. In Your Son's blood, cover me. Amen.